in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Hi. Did I do the right number of chants there? Thank you. Three, counting up to three sometimes is just like one past what I'm capable of. Hey, so uh, good to see you all. Welcome. Tonight we forge, dive headfirst into uh, matters of great importance or the importance of great matter or the great importance of matter. And um, we're done with all the like the methodolo methodological stuff and the preliminary and introductory stuff, and we just dive into definitions and classif the uh, well, basically the definitions of things that we've classified into different sets. And so, to just uh, review for a second, our um, let's see our organizational chart of reality. We have uh, objects, subjects, and the methods that, oh, that lead. And then we have the classification of objects in terms of their entity and in terms of how they're taken as objects. And in terms of entity, we have non-things and things. And things are classified in, also in terms of entity and function. And in terms of entity, we have matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. So we have uh, sort of worked our way through these, and we're now on entities and particular matter. And if we go through the root text of the collected topics, um, some of you, many of you have that, and uh, just to make sure that, uh, just to review the uh, definitions we've been through already, uh, so that you see the sort of the forest for the, uh, uh, sorry, the trees. Anyway, so you see the uh, important sort of high level simple version of uh, defining these t terms um, and not get lost in the forest of all of the details of the nuances of the different types of classifications and this and that. So we've been through the explanation of what an object is in terms of its synonyms, object, noble object is ex existent, established base, object of comprehension, and phenomena are all equivalent terms. They're all synonyms, and they're referenced 
the reference of each of them is the same thing. So um, what is the relationship between object and knowable object in terms of our Venn diagrams? Let me pull up the uh, diagrams. Knowable. Knowable object is a subset of object. Okay, so we have our first contestant says that, uh, sorry, uh, where are we here? Knowable object is a subset of object. So according to the four relationships, that would be number two. That, I vote for number one. Uh, so we have one vote for number two. We have one vote for number one, that noble object and objects are equivalent. Uh, the first vote was that one of them is included in, within the other, that there's an inclusive relationship. Any other votes? Four or five? I vote yes. number one. You vote number one. Anyone else? Remember, voting is an extremely important thing that you do as, as noble objects. You express your right to have a subject. I see another two or a victory. Okay, so the idea is that, uh, can you recede? Thank you. Um, when we say they're equivalent, that means they are um, identical. So the sets are the same. So for all of these terms, one, two, three, four, five, and six, they all define the same set of phenomena. So they're all inclusive or, sorry, identical. Derek, what threw me off about that is he says, or they say that which is cognized by awareness is an object, but that which is fit to be an object of awareness is a knowable object, and that's what didn't sound like equivalent to me. That's a good point. Uh, and you're reading from our book instead of the Duja, is that correct? Yes, yes. Cool. And tell me what page you're on. Uh, okay, this was on... I had that in my notes, but I was on 85. It was towards the end of No, sorry, 84. Yeah. yeah. 84. Okay, so yeah, in the in middle, middle there, the meaning of the sentence that which is observed by valid cognition exists in established base, object, noble object, assumed ascertainable object and phenomena are equivalent with respect to their reference. That which is established by valid cognition definition of established basis, that which is cognized by awareness, is the definition of an object. That which is fit to be an object of awareness is the definition of a knowable object, and that which is comprehended by valid cognition is the definition of an ascertainable object. So, say which one again, which definition implied a subset of another one? So, it was when I read that which is cognized by awareness is an object, 
that which is fit to be an object of awareness is a knowable object. That implied to me that there might be objects that are not, there might be thing, uh, can't say thing, but there might be a phenomenon that is not fit to be an object of awareness, but that could still be an object. So I guess the question then would be, how would we know it's there? Right. We wouldn't. I, I'm in a, I had the same thought, Emily. That was why I voted too, because I thought that there may be objects, um, but that might be non things or, some, you know, that might be a misunderstanding because right. uh, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, I believe that would go under the category of non-things. And maybe we can find where they define non-things. But what I think is is relevant here is that it points to sort of how we normally think, which is yeah. we think there are things out there whether we know them or not, you know, and that's one of the cruxes of the whole situation. So every object is fit to be an object of awareness. That's correct. And thank you so much, okay. Cynthia. You hit the nail on the head in that. The whole idea, <laughs> you hit the nail with your head, is that um, phenomena don't exist other than our awareness of them, basically. And the Western point of view is that we live in a world of objects and then there happen to be perceivers that come along and perceive them. And it's it's pretty much like taking the opposite point of view in the Eastern system, or at least the Buddhist system, is that to the extent that there's a knower, there's an object. And where there's no knowers, there's no objects. And that's key to, to uh, understand, for understanding and uh, everything else, and in particular matter, because uh, in addition to having like specific oddities in the description of matter, like um, the continuum of sound and shapes that are you know, rough, or you know certain little oddities, the big difference is that um, there's not this sense that there's an entity that has that possesses color and shape and so forth, but that all there are are colors and uh, shapes and tangible objects. So if I hold up this, which conventionally we would say this is the collected topics, uh, it says collected topics root text, right? Yellow rectangle. So um for from uh, your point of view this exists in the way that uh, Cynthia just specified it exists as a um, a visual object form of a yellow rectangle and um, we don't say that the book is a yellow book we say that there's a yellow object <laughs> and then we say there's uh, a tangible form that's <clears throat> smooth and has a certain length and width and height. And those are like um, 
basically independent things ultimately. The yellowness, the yellow color, and the tangible object of a book are different phenomena. And we, you know, so again, we think there's one phenomena, there's a book. And we know all know what a book is. A book is a compilation of pages held together in a certain way with a certain order and uh, uni unity to them. And books have shapes and sizes and colors and maybe they have, uh, if, you, if you've ever bought books from Motilal Banarsidas in India, they come and they smell like India, right? <laughs> have you ever gotten those Indian books and they... If you've been to India, you know what I'm talking about. They smell like India. And uh, if you cut up a book into a little, you know, cut a little square piece of one of the pages, it would have a certain taste, right? And so there's a book that, for our, from our point of view, we say there's a book that has a color, it has a shape, size, as well as a table of contents or an appendix and whatever. And it, it has certain tastes and weights and so forth. Not not from this other point of view. So, <clears throat> um, one of the things that uh, is stressed in the presentation of this material by Natarta Institute. So, Natarta Institute presents it from the Kagi point of view, and we're getting in this book called Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics. We're getting a Galukpa point of view. Both of them are point of points of view, and they're both of uh, um, great interest and great respect and great um, skillful means in helping us to understand emptiness. So we have to understand that the ultimate goal of all of this information is that we understand the emptiness of phenomena as well as their appearing quality, their nature as appearing. Their essence is empty and their nature is that they appear, as that phenomena appear, or that appearances appear. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not, you know, to become really good in memorizing definitions or lists or this or that. All of that is an exercise to help us break down the usual sense of unanimity that we apply to everything in our world and everything in our inner being and break it down and see that there's all these different aspects and there's no there's no glue at the center of a book that holds the pages and the color and the and the weight and all that stuff together there's the conceptual object of a book and to that we apply all those things. And so if you take the conceptual object away and say the conceptual object is a, is a empty referent, then all those um, uh, sense experiences hang in like midair without essence at the center of them. So it's like when you go out in your neighborhood and you see all the Hallow uh, Halloween displays, um, which is rampant in my neighborhood because I live in Halloween Central, right next to the Headless Horseman Cemetery, 
and a big haunted house exhibit and just like tons of uh, things. And yes, today I saw the uh, straw man and uh, what's the other one? The tin man, the tin man, right? Who doesn't have a heart, you know? So he's empty inside. Anyway, so that's... You've been reading too much philosophy. It's not a straw man, <laughs> scarecrow. Oh, right. <laughs> There's the straw man. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> There's the tin man, the scarecrow. They did try to stuff him with straw, so, you know... It, I mean, it, no, he, he is literally a straw man, but... Yeah, you know, it's... <laughs> but, but it's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. Point well taken. Um, okay, so back to just our uh, preview. What is it called? Uh, review. So these are all equivalent, and they are identical. Their ref their reference are identical, which is option number one. And uh, so they have these nuances in terms of how they're described from different points of view. That which can be known or is suitable to be taken as an object of mind, etc. And um, we have these uh, little questions, which we we uh, oh, we did a couple of them last time. So uh, this is this is a helpful way, supposedly, at least, for understanding uh, the nuances of the entities a little bit more. So. What is the relationship between object and object of valid cognition? We just did that one, right? Object of valid cognition is that which is observable by valid cognition, that which is established by valid cognition. So these uh, object and object of valid cognition, again, are identical. Object and object of an eye consciousness, what's the relationship? Identical. Two. Uh, two. Uh, one of them is the subset of the other. Which is a subset of which? I is subset of all. Yeah, that's a pretty simple. One. The uh, object of an eye consciousness is a small subset of the entire universe of objects. And here's a very tricky one. What's the relationship between an object and an object of omniscience? That is a very tricky one. Morgan? What are some examples of objects of omniscience? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, let's, uh, like a uh, Yahweh? <laughs> so is the idea, is, is the definition of object of omniscience that which a Buddha sees? Yeah, that, that which a Buddha uh, is an object for a Buddha. Ooh, I, 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 I'm going so to go out on a limb and say they're completely separate sets. Completely separate sets. Wow. I mean, that's so. That's the, there's omniscience is the wisdom of two in two ways, right? What is uh, omniscience in the Buddhist tradition has oh, relative the nature, knowledge, knowing the nature of phenomena, which is their the ultimate variety of phenomena. Knowing the nature of phenomena, which is their ultimate status, which is their emptiness, their empty appearing nature, and then their variety is all the multitude of appearances. So 
um, I would I would venture that the uh, wisdom that knows the variety of appearances is identical with object and objects of knowledge or objects, which was the question. And then I, the, sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, oh no, go on. Well, I, I mean, in that, from that point of view, you could say it is also a two. And I, that was one thought. But I also was thinking that from a certain point of view, while the Buddha can see the variety or they, they experience the variety in some way, we don't know. It, 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 my understanding is it's not necessarily a subject-object relationship, and that's why I was considering the possibility that there... it is tricky from that point of view. Yeah, but if we keep it simple and just this, and just like if I like provide the context that um, the object of the of a Buddha includes all noble objects in the way that we've been discussing them. Anyway. Not to dwell too long in this, but Cynthia has proposed that um, the relationship is a two, it's an inclusive, and what's included in what in that case? Regular objects, objects are included within objects, objects of omniscience. Of omniscience. Okay, and what, uh, tell me about the objects of omniscience that are not included in objects. Uh, objects that are experienced on the ultimate level by Buddha? Such as? Uh, well, they're emptiness, they're, they're essence, right? They're empty appearing nature, right? So we said there's two types of omniscience, that which sees and understands the nature of phenomena and their extent which is their varieties. It's a really tricky one, and I don't know the definitive textbook answer myself of like whether you would consider the emptiness to uh, be an object of valid cognition. I mean, that's generally the way that it's presented in this system is that emptiness is a knowable object and therefore uh, uh, has the result of producing liberation. But um, Chris? It wouldn't emptiness be the... Um sort of destruction of false concepts rather than the apprehension of a new concept? Uh, there's there's the, the idea of uh, abandonment and um, uh, the sort of blossoming of possible qualities such as understanding. And um, the, the, the uh, idea that Understanding abolishes something is uh, is not is certainly not a Madhyamaka point of view because uh, phenomena are not real. The uh, the essence of phenomena as being real is uh, is an illusion. So there's nothing to be vanquished. But um, yeah, but by that same logic, there's there's nothing to be perceived. You know, there, there's no there's no like. It's, it's not like we have these false concepts and then we get rid of them and like, oh, there's emptiness and you can point at it and, you know, there's the thing. You know, the, it's more about getting rid of the false concepts, which never existed to begin with, so seeing their transparency rather than seeing something else to be non-transparent. Yeah, well, this is great. This This is like... It's like sort of absurd that they threw this one in there because it does have 
these huge complexities. So probably well, we and should... it's sort of like the outer circle would be infinitely large in this. Like you have the inner circle of objects, and then the outer circle of objects of omniscience would be unfathomably gigantic, like infinitely gigantic. Well, you have to be able to describe the the class of phenomena that's not in the inner circle in a in a way that sums them all up. But anyway, let's let's move on from this one because otherwise we'll spend forever on this without it being that helpful. Uh, let's say phenomena are class in terms of their entity and the way they're taken as objects. Explanation of uh, classification in terms of entities, things, and non-things. Things. Conditioned phenomena and permanent phenomena, specifically characterized phenomena, are equivalent or synonymous terms. Thing is that which is able to perform a function. The meaning of that definition, that which is able to perform a function, is as follows. Any phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific result, such as later moments of its own continuum, or consciousness apprehending that specific phenomena, that is called that which is able to perform a function. Now, anybody remember any difference in this definition between what we're looking at on screen and what was in our books? It's probably right in uh, 84 where we were. Can you give a section name for that page number? As soon as I find it, I will. Uh, section four, phenomena in general. Yeah, section. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, I can't find where it is specifically, but my recollection is that the book text, the book that we're using, has only this part of the definition, and it does not include. So it only has one function that phenomena. Uh, perform, which is producing their own specific result. And this part here about a consciousness um, apprehending that specific phenomena, producing the, um, let's see, any ph phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific results, such as A or 1, later moments of its own continuum, or its own specific result as the, a consciousness apprehending that phenomena too. In our uh, main source book, Science and Philosophy in the Buddhist, Indian Buddhist Classics, only contains this first one, is my recollection. So that's a little nuance that uh, we need to test out and see if I remember that correctly. And why am I not able to? There it is. Come on. Okay. And we have all these different definitions of uh, thing, of these synonymous terms for the same uh, entity, a thing, condition phenomena that which has arisen from its own causes and conditions, an impermanent phenomena suitable to arise, abide, and perish, or, or that which once it comes into existence does not remain for a specific second moment, 
specifically characterized phenomena ultimately able to perform a function. And then we have things in terms of their entity, matter consciousness and not associated, and in terms of their function, cause and result, conditions, and then two is result. And here we have matter. So tonight we have matter. And matter is defined here as that which consists of particles, for example, form. And um, we're starting tonight's reading on page uh, 87, which is section 5, the essential nature of physical entities. And uh, course material phenomena must be defined in terms of their character of obstructive resistance. When the essential nature or unique attributes of physical entities are explained in various Buddhist texts, the term that which is capable of materiality is mentioned. So one of the uh, actually many oddities of physical matter <clears throat> is that it's often defined, one of the main ways it's defined is as that which is suitable or fit to be matter. Let me encounter this technical term, fit. <laughs> last week and uh, one of the uh, so matter is has all these oddities and you can sort of see as we go through them that matter doesn't make a whole lot of sense in some ways and that uh, it creates a very nice springboard for mind only uh, but that has yet to be uh, determined and we need to uh, debate that and refute that or try to refute that um, and be really critical about everything presented in here. And um, there's two ways of describing matter. One is that which is that which obstructs or can be damaged and that which is made of particles. And those are two very different definitions for the same thing. The first one is like that which occupies space or um, obstructs other phenomena from occupying a space or can be uh, impacted by other phenomena, can be damaged or increased or whatever. And then the other one is that which uh, consists of particles. And so the Natarta Kagyu version is very simple, that which consists of particles. And uh, this Galupa one was a mo little more complicated. So on this uh, page, number 87, part 5, Essential Nature of Physical Entities, the first quote is from Chandra Kirti's Entering the Middle Way. Here we read, Form possesses the characteristics, the characteristic of that capable of materiality, which doesn't, you know, say a whole lot. <laughs> It, it proves that the tradition of circular definitions that is present is strong and long history, and long tradition in Buddhism. Yes. Now, also keep aware of the use of the term form versus materiality, because form is a very elusive and uh, term that has a schizophrenic quality of uh, being used in various ways. Capable of materialities explained by Vasubandhu in his Treasury of Knowledge auto-commentary, which is the uh, Abhidharma Kosha Bhashya. 
and it's what is capable what is called capable of materiality ultimately means that which is capable of being damaged for example when one touches a newly arisen flower petal the mere touch of the hand affects the new flower petal and the sight touched withers and darkens damage in this context means to induce change and this is explained there in that same text what harms a physical entity that which produces total change in essence this notion notion of damage means that since various changes occur because of the mutual interaction between material things they are sorry characterized as capable of being damaged in the curious why they wouldn't why wouldn't they just use capable of being changed as the definition since they're promising the word damage on change so it seems like the more fundamental definition is just that which is capable of being changed thoughts can change but <laughs> that? thoughts can change right well true <clears throat> well the but definitions can change too so we'll see i think we'll see that yeah, sort of, it seems sort of lame <laughs> But it's, but it's consistent with object occupying space. If you try to, you're an object, you try to occupy the space, you're going to have to damage it in some way to uh, I, I don't, I don't buy, I, I, I understand the obstruction aspect. That part I can relate to, but the damage part, you know, you can move something. It doesn't have to damage it. No, you, you're going to damage it. You just can't see the damage. It, it, impermanent. Uh, remember the, uh, we have these, um, synonymous terms here thing condition phenomena impermanent phenomena and specifically characterized phenomena are equivalent so would you say that all impermanent phenomena change cynthia all impermanent phenomena yeah 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 okay so what's the relationship between thing and matter Anybody? What's the relationship between thing and matter? Well, do things include thoughts, like as Chris was pointing out before? Well, thoughts is a sort of hairy one, but yes. Uh, but things also include mind and non-associated formations, right? Right. So in that case, yeah. Things are three Okay, so types. yeah, no, I, I, I was... Okay, so all yeah. three of these things change. So you, if you define matter as that which change changes, then you've blurred this whole. Yeah, no, I, yeah, right. I appreciate that. I just think that this damage thing just doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess we'll I guess what they're saying is that what thoughts and other stuff like that can't be damaged. We'll note that. Uh, let's see in the auto commentary. So at the very bottom of the page sentence, three questions are posed in responding to objections raised against explaining the phrase capable of materiality, which was um, Chandra Kirti's uh, way of explaining what form, what characteristic form possesses. And, and uh, Vasubandhu has explained that in terms of capable of being damaged by other physical phenomena. The first objection is, 
if capable of materiality is explained in terms of capable of being damaged, then subtle particles cannot be material entities because they cannot be harmed by other material phenomena. So one other thing about um, subtle particles is that you can't see them, you can't touch them, you can't impact them. I guess this this is before this was written before they figured out how to split the atom. And so somebody's saying, well, um, capable of being damaged, you can't damage subtle particles. And the text responds by stating that whereas a subtle particle that resides in isolation cannot be damaged. Isn't that wild? A subtle particle cannot be damaged. Therefore, is a subtle particle form? Does it matter? Sorry, not form. Is a subtle particle matter if it can't be damaged? According to this definition, no. Uh, let's see. It, it is capable of being harmed when combined with other subtle particles. Two, a second objection. In that case, according to you, material things of the past and the future cannot be material entities because they are not capable of being damaged by other material phenomena. In response, the text states that as for both past and future material forms, since one has already existed in the past as a material entity and the other will exist in the future as a material entity, and furthermore, since both are similar in type with present material form, they can be posited as material phenomena as well, even though they can't be presently damaged, but for those reasons. For example, because some trees in a forest are firewood, the entire forest may be labeled as firewood. <laughs> so, you know, again, this the purpose of this is to sharpen your mind and to, and to uh, thereby understand the absurdity of matter. And so I think our task is not necessarily to uh, look at the way they describe things and uh, see the absurdity of the way they describe things or the primitive nature of the way they describe things, but rather to understand the nuances that they're trying to grapple with from their point of view, uh, even though they may, from our point of view, seem limited. Uh, but it's like to understand the mindset that they're coming from in looking at the universe that they appeared in. Which, by the way, did anyone notice that uh, some scientists were awarded a Nobel Prize for uh, proving that the universe was unreal locally? Did anyone see that headline? I think so, actually, yeah. I, I... I have to, I have to uh, take a second to share this all with you hold on so while you're doing that so you're saying so when they say so subtle particle in isolation that's the definition that subtle particles exist in isolation uh, they never do okay it's a it's a it's a hypothetical okay. subtle particles actually never do exist in isolation because i go with the subtle particle can be damaged by other subtle particles but, i mean the thing is but that, then they say isolation i'm like well uh, yeah but I'm that's not. kind of it's kind of silly also because 
non-subtle particles, if you put them in isolation, would be unlikely to be damaged also. So it seems like that was a kind of a whole silly setup to make that. Thank you, Chris. So Chris found this very quickly. So uh, Scientific American, that's a fairly reputable um, magazine, journal, within the world that's not real. The universe is not locally real. <laughs> I don't know. Did anyone read this yet? Chris, you just Googled it and found it, right? Have, did you read it? What does locally mean? means objects can only be influenced by their surroundings and that any influence cannot travel faster than light. So, <clears throat> just saying. You think, you think the stuff we're reading here sounds weird. Imagine them reading things like that headline and things like in quantum physics and quantum mechanics and stuff like that. That stuff's really weird. Anyway, take a little while, like relax your, you know, definitely got to be critical, but give them a little bit of rope to hang themselves before you try to hang them prematurely, okay? You know, matter is that which can be damaged, you know, sort of like consider it for a while before you conclude otherwise. The third objection is, given your definition, non-indicative form <laughs> would not qualify as physical form because it cannot be harmed by other material phenomena. You know, so they make up a category and then they add to it the opposite of the category. So non-indicative form is on footnote 78, which says such as the form of a vow, is material form that does not reveal or indicate the mind that motivates it. So this is this interesting belief that vows are a type of form that can be either held with, uh, upheld, like if you hold, if you um, don't break your vows, your form, the form of your vow is unbroken. And if you break your vows, that can be visit, that can be seen by those who have clairvoyance, which are individuals who are on the path of seeing or higher. They can see whether your vow of pratimoksha or so on has been broken. And so when you take a vow, such as the refuge vow, it is it creates a type of mental form. It's a strange belief, obviously, but uh, they also, in practice, uh, when they give the refuge vow, they're never supposed to have a physical object between the preceptor and the recipient, which is why it's a little bit odd to do it on Zoom, in my humble opinion, but a lot of people do that these days. And those people do it because they don't believe that matter is uh, real in the sense of an external object. They believe in mind only. Anyway, You'll see that this this way their attempt to describe the universe in a very precise way uh, meets with all sorts of uh, difficulties given their world view. The text responds that non-indicative form is categor 
characterized as material form since it is supported by indicative form that itself exists as material form. Which is a little bit of gobbledygook, which is a technical term uh, within the language of goblins. Analogously, when a tree moves, its shadow also moves. Did you catch the import of that? I don't want to dwell on it, but there's these oddities in the system that uh, are meant, I think, I think the, I, the only way I can conclude that they're there is that they're there to mess with your mind. As all of this is basically, okay. The auto-commentary states objection, but subtle particles are not material form because they don't exist as material form, which is the silliest thing possible because the whole idea is that subtle particles are what makes up matter, that matter is made of subtle conglomerations of subtle particles. So for them to say that, somebody to say that um, subtle particles are not material form because they don't exist as material form, pretty weird. The response, even though the discrete form of a subtle particle cannot exist in an isolated state, those residing as an aggregation are capable of materiality. So the Sautrantikas here, which are the basis of the, the, the view expressed here, is a sort of a blend of Vibhashaka, the early atomists, and the Sautrantikas, who are a little bit more into the um, epistemological slant on reality. And they, they're taking, the, the Sautrantikas are taking the view of the Vibhashikas and trying to present it in a logical way. And uh, you can see that it doesn't work that well in all, in all situations, and this is one of them. That subtle particles are supposed to conglomerate and make the form that we see around us. And logically, if, if you think about it, <clears throat> we have tables and chairs and walls and floors and ceilings, and it does make sense that they're made up of subtle particles, of uh, very tiny little particles, but nobody's ever seen a tiny little particle, nor touched one, nor tasted one, nor uh, smelled one, or heard one. So uh, they're a little dubious, and they... they are are not are said to never exist in isolation. Okay, objection. But that which exists in the past and future is not material form. Response: That which has already existed is material form, and that which will become material form and material form because they're similar in type to present material form, such as firewood. In the Vibhashika system, they believe in space, they believe in subtle particles, and they believe that the past and the future exist in a certain way. So they have these primitive beliefs, and uh, for some reason the Sautrantikas feel compelled to try to fit them into their system. And it's sort of interesting to see at what point they realize the absurdity of that. Final objection on the bottom of page 88 is, but that which is non-indicative is not material form. Response, that which is indicative exists as material form. That which is non-indicative exists as material form, just as the shadow moves when the tree moves. 
another whole world on indicative form. And the fact that it's le leaving you all speechless with blank expressions is perfect. No, no, I'm not blank because <laughs> you're, you're misrepresenting the shadow. The shadow is the indicative shadow of photons. It has nothing. It's not the tree. The photons yes. hitting the okay. tree are blocked. Right? So the shadow is indicative of photons being blocked by the tree. Indeed. But the, the shadow moves because the sun moves, not because the tree moves. Right. And the, well, it could, and the it photons could be either. Come from the tree the sun. could move. The tree, could, the tree move. could be blown and it would shift. Yeah, and the tree could move and the shadow would move because it's moved relative to the sun's photons hitting it. Anyway, in, in a Sangha's <laughs> compendium of Abhidharma, however, when the nature of material form is posited, it's defined in terms of that which exists as form. So Sangha is theoretically from the, the so-called Yogacara, Chittamatra school, and he's going to be a little less uh, deliberate in his uh, presentation of form. Material form is posited as posited um, when the nature of material form is posited, it's defined in terms of that which exists as form. Totally circular definition. The fact that they tolerate circular definitions is in itself a really sort of profound statement of the way that they view the whole situation. Is it sort of like this acknowledgement that um, the system is not... Uh, externally verifiable or um, ultimately verifiable except within its own parameters or something like that. And it is classified in two different types in which, uh, sorry, that which exists as material form since it has the property of obstructive resistance. He, he's siding with Cynthia who had a terrible reaction to damage and that which exists as material form since it's apprehended conceptually by discernment that takes physical objects and their attributes as some such object of mental cognition and that's a, an attempt to deal with this notion of uh, non-indicative form that material form which we touched on one type which is the vow another type is when you uh, perfect the absorptions and uh, for example let's say you you uh, meditate intensively on uh, skeletons and skeletons appear everywhere and to the extent that other people can see the skeletons that you see which is not something that we ex accept in the west but his compendium of Vidharma states when the what are the characteristics of the form aggregate so Note that we're, in this case, we're talking about the five aggregates or skandhas. We're talking about the form aggregate. We're not yet talking about form in the scheme of the ayatanas, the 12 ayatanas, nor form in the scheme of the 12 datus. Right? And so one of the things for you to grapple with or ponder is what's the relationship between the skanda of form and the ayatana of form. 
I'll come back to that in a little while. What is the character? What are the characteristics of the form aggregate? The characteristic of that existing as form is that existing as form through either aspect, which refers to one that existing as form owing to making contact, and two that existing as form owing to imagining the object. What is existing as form owing to making contact? It is that which is capable of materiality when contacted by a hand or a stone or a stick, a weapon, or cold, heat, hunger, thirst, bees, gadflies, winds, on scorpions and snakes. What a freaking odd list. Is, is that list exhaustive? It's not, I don't believe that it's meant to be exhaustive. I think there's a couple of other things that he left out. <laughs> the kitchen sink. <laughs> the same text states, you know, so it's hard not to make fun of this, right? So you, you got to like wonder. Well, just uh, need an et cetera at the end, at least, you know? At least, yeah, okay. Uh, what is, the same text states, what is that which exists as form owing to imagining the object? It refers to any object apprehended by meditative equipoise, i.e. in one of the absorptions, as such and such material form or some such material form. Or it is that which is apprehended conceptually by, by non-equipoise mental conception and its concomitant mental factors. So you're in a world where uh, it's commonly taken for uh, accepted reality that people are able to experience mental form by doing intensive uh, concentration practice. They're able to manifest uh, earth where there's water and they can walk across water, they can walk through space because they have uh, perfected the absorption the fourth level of absorption using the Earth's casino as their object. So how do you explain things like that? You have to have an exhaustive system that incorporates things like that and not just say, well, that's an exception to every rule in the book. Okay. Um, Meditative equipoise refers to the mind of meditative equipoise, that's single-pointed concentration, cultivating repulsiveness. So uh, in the contemplation of repulsiveness, and see, let's see, in the mind of non-equipoise refers to concept-laden mental consciousnesses, consciousness mistaken, unmistaken with respect to conceived objects that it apprehends, which are external objects in relation to which conception proliferates. Uh, let's see, 84, is that right, is the footnote. Okay, so meditative mind, repulsive, yeah, Buddha he refers to Buddha path of purification, and the meditation of repulsiveness is where one visualizes the decomposition of a human corpse in nine stages, ending with skeletons, and one then perceives skeletons, and uh, it's said that when one perfects this, other people who uh, come in contact with you can perceive other people as skeletons too, just by proximity. 
very bizarre phenomena. Anyway, on the very bottom, when commenting on passages cited earlier from the compendium of Abhidharma, a gentleman named uh, Jina Putra or uh, Yashomitra states in his blah, 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 any object refers to manifest states, such and such refers to physical images. This is not very helpful. Anyway, let's skip that. Although, in the next paragraph, there is a slight difference between the two brothers. Who were the two brothers? The flying Karamazov brothers. Is it Asanga and Vasubandhu? Asanga and Vasubandhu are said to have been brothers, yes. There's a slight difference between the two brothers who are masters of Abhidharma and how they de define form, namely what is capable of materiality or what exists as form. Their views converge in the fact that in general there are two main categories of form. One type of form that is an object of sense consciousness and a second that is an object of mental cognition alone. So form that's an object of mental cognition. We don't need to like dwell on that one particularly, but it's just a sort of interesting thing that they accept that of these two. The first class of form, namely those that have property of obstructive resistance include the five sense objects, such as visible, form, sound, and so on. The second category of form, those that are the objects of mental cognition alone, in turn has two kinds, those that are obstructive and those that are non-obstructive, types of uh, non-indicative, i.e. mental form. The examples of the first kind are the five sense faculties, such as the eyes and so on, which are internal form, whereas the second type, which are non-obstructive, are known as mental object forms. So the first type is the main focus of form in, in the tradition, and uh, we'll go through that shortly. Thus, in general, when the presentation of physical form is made in Buddhist texts, it's crucial to understand the difference between physical form and visible material form. Physical form is a term applied in general to all material phenomena, whereas visible material form, the form base, um, so form base, base is I think the way this text is translating, uh, it's either ayatana or datu, I think it's ayatana. It's a subcategory of physical form, right? So. Um, physical form is a term applied in general to all phenomena. How many different types of physical of uh, physical form are there? We'll go through those types. Visible material form is one type. Auditory material form is another type. Sense, smell, you know. So the five, the objects of the five senses are uh, physical form, and then the uh, sense bases, sense, sorry, the sense faculties, the eye sense faculty, and so on. So there's five sense faculties that are physical form, and there's five sense objects that are physical form, and then there's the four great elements that are physical form. So we'll encounter these shortly. Uh, let's see, whereas the physical, visible, sorry, material form, form base is a subcategory of physical form. The latter, 
visible material form must be understood in terms of visible form, such as material entities possessing shape and color that are perceived by high consciousness. Hence, one must make the distinction that sound, smell, taste, and tactile, tactility are material forms, but they're not visible material forms. According to Sangha's version, one should differentiate between physical form defined in terms of that capable of materiality and form defined in terms of the property of obstruction. What that text refers to as existing as form owing to making physical contact must be understood as referring to obstructive material phenomena. And uh, uh, so the, the mental form would be that capable of materiality. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Thank you. And uh, must be understood. Uh, and the, the, what we would call form is obstructive material phenomena. Conversely, that existing as form through imagining the object, such as mental object form, is not compelled to possess the property of obstructive resistance. Therefore, although these forms, such as mental object forms, are characterized as physical, they need not be posited as obstructive. So there's physical form as the larger category, and within that you can say that there's two types. There's obstructive physical form, which is what we would call form, and then there's non-obstructive, which is mental object form. So on the top of 91, again, these, these Abhidharma masters speak of three specific characteristics and three general characteristics of form. So uh, Sangha states, there are three specific characteristics, the translucent sense organs, the perceived objects of the sense organs and the perceived objects of mental cognition. Now, is the translucent sense organ like a glass eye? <laughs> Sorry. The three specific characteristics seems to be more like three different types than what we would call characteristics. The five types of translucent form that support the five sense consciousnesses belonging to sense bases such as uh, glass eyes and causally derived from the four great elements are called sense organs. The five objects such as visible form that are objects of their five congruent physical sense organs are called form perceived by sense organs. The sense organs associated with consciousnesses are called homogenous because they are congruent with their respective consciousnesses and its objects. So the eye um, sense organ and the eye sense faculty are homogenous, but the eye sense um, organ and the ear sense faculty are not homogenous and are not congruous. If, uh, that's my attempt to help you understand these terms homogenous and congruous. So in the, when you have the Dautus, you have sets of three phenomena that all are um, congruous. There's the eye, um, the eye sense faculty, there's the eye sense base, which is the physical eye, and there's the eye visual consciousness. And those are all congruous. For some reason, they make a big deal out of that. Those sense organs that are devoid of consciousness are called partially homogenous because they eventually become congruent in the same way as those that are homogenous. This is an oddity. Uh, sense organs that are devoid of consciousness. The form of a physical uh, 
uh, image that is a referent field of single-pointed concentration. It's called form. That is an experiential field of mental cognition. So when we focus in absorption meditation on a casino, a little disc or an image of one of the elements or one of the colors, that is a physical image that is a referent field of single-pointed concentration when it transforms into an internal um, image or mental indicative form. One should recognize the three general characteristics of form. All form impedes objects and always exists separate from such objects. This is the first general characteristic, impeding other objects. All form perceived by the sense organs and their perceived form of the sense organs exhibit increase and decrease. So form increases and decreases in various characteristics such as size and uh, volume. This is the center, second general characteristic. All form is capable of tactility, such as that contact by the hand, a stone, and so forth. <laughs> Um, so Can I ask through. a question about the first one of those? All form impedes objects and the part about always existing separate from such objects. So was the basic praticca samutpada, you know, everything being interdependent and sort of things like that, not operative at this time? Or is that not in some way contradictory to that? Uh, interdependent origination between physical form objects occurs because they are separate. If they were not separate, then they couldn't have a causal and effect relationship. Well, I guess on the more ultimate level, if you don't think of everything as a thing, then... <laughs> You've got to stay within one system when you describe Okay, that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Which system are we in here? We're in a system where... We're in the world of Samtrantika, Vaibhashika Samtrantika, where things are real. Everything is real. Okay, thank you. Every, everything, right. including mental object forms right, right. and non-associated formations, time and uh, letters and space and so forth. The three specific, on top of 92, three specific characteristics referred to in this text pertain to the specific nature of different types of forms, such as translucent form of the five sense faculties, such as the eyes. So the sense faculties are a particular type of subtle form that are all translucent. They're not visible to the normal human eye. They can't be touched by our tactility. Um, uh, sense organ, whatever you want to call that. They can't be heard, smelled, or tasted. Uh, two, form perceived by the sense organs as the five objects, such as visible form, and then form perceived by mental cognition as the reference field of mental consciousness alone, such as the image that is an object of single-pointed con concentration. So you have these 11 types of form mapped out here, five uh, sense organ faculties, five sense objects, and then the mental form. By general characteristics, the text means those properties that are common to and shared by many types of physical phenomena, thus impend impeding objects refers to the property of many physical phenomena, whereby they display the nature of impeding the presence of other physical objects. can't have two things at the same place at the same time. 
exhibit increase and decrease refers to the character of material phenomena that is subject to increment and decrement. Capable of tactility refers, sorry, means that many physical phenomena are characterized as having the prob property of tangible contact, either external or internal. <clears throat> now, the fact that they say many physical phenomena is a little odd, as it begs the question of, uh, well, not all. In general, when classification of the material form are made, the texts tend to speak in terms of the twofold division of outer physical form that is an object of the five sense consciousness and two inner physical forms such as the five sense faculties. Here in our compendium, we'll follow the approach of a Sangha and present the classification of form in four sections. Outer physical form, the five sense objects, inner physical form, the five sense faculties, mental object form, and then the primary elements that act as the causes of the above three types of form. So, an extremely long-winded and convoluted and difficult and painful uh, description of what form is before we go through uh, the description of the different types of form and their, their categories. Because form is really ridiculously hard to, to describe. The five sense objects such as physical, visible form are posited as objects of consciousness of the five sense doors. Thus the objects that are perceived by eye, etc., are defined as visible form, etc. So what is form? It is an object derived from the four great elements, as they all are. All form is derived from the, the four great elements, except for which type? Non-indicative form, mental object form is not derived from the four great object uh, elements rather and in the case of form uh, as the object of the visual consciousness it constitutes the field of experience of the eye sense faculty sound is is an object of the four great elements and constitutes the perceived object of the ear sense faculty etc. On the bottom, the phrase, the field of experience of the eye sense faculty indicates that just as the image of an object appears in a mirror, it is on the basis of physical form appearing to the eye sense faculty that eye consciousness apprehends physical form. So this is a little bit different than what Cynthia and I were talking about at the beginning where there's uh, where we said there was not like this world of physical objects and then a perceiver exists to, to perceive them. But in this case, there's a world of color and shape and there were, there's a world of sound and so forth. And there's perceivers that have developed that perceive them. So the, one of the interesting things I, I uh, think about, or uh, one can think, one can try to, uh, compare this to is that in uh, Western science we talk about uh, evolution and if we look at the theory of evolution from single cell organisms crawling out of the ocean or whatever it is or in the ocean to uh, sentient beings that have sense faculties the, uh, the evolution of uh, organisms is that they develop the faculty to perceive aspects of their surroundings that exists. So, um, 
there's a world of color. And so sentient beings develop faculties to perceive color. And there's a world of sound and sentient beings perceive, develop the, the faculties to perceive sound. So our faculties have developed over time in response to the presence of these fields, what Trump Rimshik calls the fields of the ayatanas, the limitless fields. So there's limitless fields of color and shape. And human beings develop a certain set, uh, type of visual faculty that perceives a certain subset of the universe of color and shape. Other sentient beings perceive some of the same colors and shapes and some different colors and shapes, right? There's some light uh, light f uh, frequencies that we can't perceive that other creatures can. Similarly for sound, presumably for smell, and presumably for taste, possibly also for touch. There's, there's uh, um, tangibles that we're not able to perceive that other other sentient beings might be able to perceive. So there's like this universe of colors and shapes and sounds and so forth. And we develop a limited capability to experience some subset of those through our faculties. Okay, so on the next page, 94, phys visible form. <clears throat> To explain this topic, the perceived object of eye consciousness is called visible form, such as blue or yellow color. If classified, visible form is twofold, color and shape. I had dismissed sh uh, shape earlier in this course, uh, but this is the standard presentation. Thank you. Uh, I think Cynthia had at one point mentioned that in response to my focus on just color. So color and shape, the, f the first refers to hues like blue, yellow, and so on, which are referred to as colors. And then there's configurations, long, short, square, and so on, that are called shapes. So far, we're okay? <laughs> so far, it seems reasonable. <laughs> Not at all. If one were to take a house as an example, its white or yellow hue is posited as its color, while its proportions or dimensions are its shape. Color falls into two classes, primary colors and secondary colors. That which is fit to be primary color is the definition of primary colors. When differentiated, there are four primary colors, which are the different than in the Western scientific uh, system of primary colors. What are the what are the primary colors in uh, our world? Red, yellow, blue. Is that correct, everyone? Artists in the room. Red, yellow, blue. Uh, so here we have the color white. What is white held to be in in our world? Is white the the absence the presence, or the presence of, of all? all is it all colors or none? It depends um, whether you're in light. It's an additive or a subtractive none. color mixing system. Excellent. I love that. Okay, good. Uh, these four are called primary colors since the secondary colors are derived from combinations of these four. So there's a, defi a uh, definition or an indication of a definition of secondary colors as being derived from combinations of the four. For example, yellow combined with the predominance of blue makes green. Therefore, the term primary should be understood in terms of being the basis or the cause of the secondary colors. 
What were the primary colors in our Western world? Red, yellow, blue. Red, yellow, blue. Same. Three out of the four. Okay. Oh, let's see. Alternatively, these four are called primary colors because they conform with the colors of the four primary elements that constitute the basis or the cause of resultant forms. So, earth, water, fire, and air each have a color. And uh, so everything matches up. That which is fit to be a secondary hue is the definition of secondary colors. <laughs> which is fit. When differ differentiated, eight secondary colors are identified. <laughs> Here we might diverge a little bit from the Western system. Light, darkness, cloud, smoke, dust, shadow, mist, and sunlight. So the task, I think, is to, to try to understand the mindset that came up with secondary colors of this these types. It's like, what are they thinking? What are they talking about? How are they viewing their world that, that they could come up with secondary colors in such a way instead of like purple and green and Christopher? I, I think it has something to do with like varying like lighting and uh, visibility conditions that might affect the way you see a color. So um, you were holding up that yellow book earlier and half the yellow book was like eliminated, illuminated by your computer screen and half of it was kind of in shadow. So you're seeing two different colors on one yellow object. So you've got kind of the yellowness is primary and then the lighting conditions are secondary is what I think they're on about. And, and it's, just, it's just a totally different scheme than, than when we talk about secondary colors being what happened when you mixed primary colors. And, and that was going to be part of that was going to be part of my question about mixing because if you include white as a primary color, then that means you get shade involved as well as hue when you start mixing colors. So if you mix two primaries and white any amount of white together, you're going to get this whole range of kind of gray and brown tones, which is a lot. Or sorry, three. If you mix, mix the three primary colors together and the white, you're going to get Colors that are going to look a lot like darkness, cloud, smoke, dust, shadow, mist, and sunlight. So getting white involved, like, definitely muddies things. I, I sort of suspect that it's also, you know, just sort of taking it out of the color mixing painter mentality, which is the natural first thing. I'm kind of thinking that they're just looking at their world and seeing their world and experiencing it and saying, here's the whole range of phenomena that we see that are obviously uh, somehow derivative of those basic colors, but not so much from the point of view of mixing in a palette. Sure, it's just interesting that blue is not considered a, a color that appears in nature very often. So uh, they came up with these primary colors somewhere, the same three primary colors we have. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, well, there's the sky. I mean, they might have noticed. There that. is, there is the sky, but blue, <laughs> like in the history, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but blue is considered this elusive color in um, nature, uh, and it, it has is. to be produced. Blue, so. blue is a very weird oddity in uh, in the world of art and painting and colors. It's like um, they didn't. They're like. Uh, there used to be this woman in our classes, Erica Keck, who was an artist, and she like sent me all these articles about blue and how like 
uh, ancient languages like didn't have words for blue until like fairly recently and they didn't like talk about blue or depict it or is this like this weird thing about blue yeah from that point of view you would think green would have been considered a primary just because it's so predominant in yeah. the world it, it is in certain earlier systems like uh, goethe who wrote a lot about color theory has green as a as a primary color I mean, it's the color of money. Jeez. Anyway. Um, some, only some, not all. These colors are called secondary since it is the independence on the combination of the four primary colors in varying measures that the secondary colors emerge. So that's one point of view of the secondary colors is that uh, you create them by com combinations of the primaries, which is not terribly convincing to me. Uh, this guy. You know, the other thing, just to add one more, you know, uh, color note, as I'm, I'm like literally like sitting next to a bunch of paint. So, you know, it's kind of, you know. It's sort of on your mind. Uh, color. Kind of, kind of, I like close at hand. Um, we have another is, color. color is that, um, I do hair generally, as, as language evolves, um, for colors, the blue being a really good example, like like a, the word for the color doesn't really come in uh, until that pigment is wild, widely available. Yeah. So like the word orange in English is kind of funny, right? Because it, it refers to a fruit. And you might ask which came first. And the answer is actually the fruit uh, is the earlier word than the word orange. No? Um, so it's like... Uh, first it was the name of the fruit and then it became the name of the color of the fruit. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, you have to realize that so much of the you know pigments that we have are relatively modern inventions, and that at the time a lot of this stuff was coming up, coming out. You know, they were making pigments out of out of earth, and you know it was like brown and white and gray and black, you know, and maybe some red. You know, there's there's only so much so much color you can get out of dirt from various places, grinding up seashells maybe too. But, you know, it's like uh, these words don't really come into languages until they're widely available. So it, it shouldn't surprise us that our, uh, you know, uh, post-industrial, you know, chemistry world uh, has a different understanding and vocabulary around colors uh, than, you know, a, a pre-modern society would. And that's all I have to say about that. Okay. It's fat, it's like a it's definitely a fascinating topic and particularly the way these guys these secondary colors are so bizarre. So skipping the quote, although uh, there's no need for a secondary color to be any of those eight, the reason really okay, <laughs> the reason why secondary colors are explained in terms of those eight in Abhidharma texts is because the four, for example, cloud, smoke, dust, and mist can like the horse or ox of a magical illusion, appear like a solid wall when viewed from a great distance. Yet no such solidity can be seen when observed close up. Okay, so to counter the possible misconception that they do not exist at all, these four are listed as secondary colors. Similarly, with respect to the remaining four, light, darkness, shadow, and sunlight, these are mentioned to counter the misconception that light and so on do not exist separately from the sites where they, where they are perceived. <laughs> not that clear, right? <clears throat> um, 
let's see. Yasu. Does that mean that light is form? Is that what they're saying? That that because color is how we define form, then light is form? Yeah. Light is form, darkness is form, shadow is form, and sunlight is form. Thank you for pointing that out in that way. It takes a different different color when you point point it out that way, doesn't it? complicated also because it's a double negative here here this should be analyzed if some say that secondary colors such as cloud color are specific subsets of the four primary colors such as blue and there are no others then cloud color and so on should not be listed as secondary colors just as green and so on are not mentioned why are green why is green not mentioned response those who state this have not analyzed the issue properly such attributes as green can be listed and through cloud color and sorry and though cloud color and so on are specific subsets of blue and so forth they are explained separately because they are like illusory form thus when one approaches colors that appear to be like a solid wall in the distance they stop appearing and some upon reflection think that they do not exist in the least but it is inappropriate to be of two minds about this thinking, whatever it is exists, or conversely, it is merely an illusion. Therefore, secondary colors such as cloud color are explained for the purpose of stopping such distorted conceptions and doubts, for it is said the essential nature of these form bases does exist. It's going to take a while to really understand what they're talking about with these secondary forms. It's very bizarre. Um, white horse is not white. Okay. Shapes, that which is fit to be a configuration is the definition of shape. When di differentiated, there are eight types, long, short, square, round. And then we have high, low, even or smooth, and uneven or rough. <laughs> Of the square refers to that which is four sided round, etc. Um, and then the auto commentator states even is a smooth shape, uneven is a shape that is not smooth. So even is a smooth shape that has no breaks and it has no abnormalities. Uneven is one that does have breaks and abnormalities. Thus, when the divisions of visible form on the next page are added up, there are 20 in total. From the commentary, we have the form basis, 20 types, blue, yellow, red, and white, long, short, square, round, high, low, even or smooth, and uneven or rough, cloud, smoke, dust, mist, shadow, sun, light, and darkness. These guys had a sense of humor, I'd say. That said, given that such colors as green, black, and so on also belong to the category of visible form, it's not necessarily the case that if it is a visible form, it must be any of these 20. So this is a, not an exhaustive list. This is an exemplary list, except that the list of primary colors is said to be exhaustive. <clears throat> Asanga, in his compendium, says that visible form is classified in 25 aspects. We don't have to go through all those. Um, except some of them are interesting. Uh, in the middle of the list after number 14, which uh, we saw earlier, from the point of view of whether they are augmented or diminished, they're eight, shadow, sunlight, darkness, cloud, and smoke, dust, and mist. 
his his explanation for those secondary colors is very different from the point of view of whether they are augmented or diminished. And then he says, in addition, there is the form of open space that serves as a necessary basis for eye consciousness to see distant forms. Indicative form, which refers to the specific shape of the body that has the characteristic of indicating a person's mot motivation. <laughs> Such as this, <laughs> this, yeah, things like that. And the uniform color of the sky is a factor of ornamentation. Okay, on the bottom, the form of open space refers to that which, sorry, to the whitish vacuity of vacant space that is the absence of obstruction whose existence is essential for eye consciousness to see distant physical objects. The uniform color of the sky refers to the form appearing uniformly to eye consciousness as the clear blue color of the vacant sky in the distance. Indicative form refers to the configurations of the body that reveal another, another's inner motivation, such as, for example, the expression of joy in the form of a smiling face, a smiley face. They would have liked emoticons then, huh? Yeah, the emoticons would, would be, have been very helpful. You know, it's just like the uh, the fascinating part to me is that I I thought until encountering this material, I thought that understanding the presentation of emptiness was the most complicated part of the whole system in Buddhism. But in fact, it's color and form. It's like the hardest freaking thing to understand what they're thinking. It really is bizarre. Oh, skipping the quote, furthermore, the fact that visible form can be classified in terms of three primary categories, I'm going to elaborate in terms of 32, as explained by a song, I will skip the list. Okay, sound. Um, to explain the sense object of sound and the field of experience of ear consciousness, what is audible to the ear is sound. Examples include the sound of water flowing or the melody of a flute. Sound is classified in terms of A-types, which the auto-commentary states. Sound is A-types. Four types are causally derived from the great elements, the four great elements, either conjoined or not conjoined with mind. So you have this notion of there being natural sound produced by the four elements alone without any sentient being intervening, and then sound produced by the four great elements uh, controlled or uh, in some way manipulated by a sentient person, sentient being. Uh, within these, there exist sounds that are either appealing or unappealing, making it eightfold. Strange classification. There's another oddity about sound. The four sounds derived from elements conjoined with the mind stream are pleasant sounds that convey meaning. What's that? That convey meaning. Pleasant sounds that don't convey meaning, like thunderclaps. Uh, well, they may not be pleasant. Unpleasant sounds that do not convey meaning. Examples of these four, respectively, the pleasant sound of a person singing. 
conveys meaning. The sound of a man speaking harsh words is unpleasant sound that conveys meaning. The song of a cuckoo is a pleasant sound that does not convey meaning. And the sound of a fist striking something is an unpleasant sound that doesn't convey meaning to sentient beings, which could be disputed, I guess. I totally agree that those last two both could be disputed. In contrast, the four sounds that are derived from the great elements not conjoined with the mind stream are pleasant sound that conveys meaning, etc. The same four categories, but um, that are uh, derived from the, the eight great elements not conjoined with the mind stream. Um, examples of these four pleasant words issuing from a television. <laughs> it's not a traditional example, obviously. Um, harsh words issuing from a television, the sound of a lute, and the sound of rock cracking. Now, how they consider the sound of a lute to be sounds derived from the great elements not conjoined with the mind stream is beyond me. How was the sound of lute not conjoined with the mind stream? Is it a mindless activity playing the flute? The lute? There's a footnote. Anyway, skipping that quote, the next section says, that which conveys or does not convey meaning to sentient beings indicates whether the sound communicates some level of meaning while being conjoined or not conjoined should be understood as whether that sound is conjoined with the physical sense faculties and so forth. Um, skipping these things. Let's see, a song is compendium, has 11 types, let's skip that. Uh, the next quote details them. Um, there's, there's this other interesting thing about sound. Let's go skip to that on the next page, on page 100. Um, oh, there's this very funny thing, let's see. There's a separate category of uh, the conventions of the world uttered with within everyday language and then conventions revealed by tenant systems are apparently like different types of sounds, such as all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. So there's a differentiation between sounds uttered by arias and non-arias. Okay, let's uh, go on to linguistic sounds, which is a specific type of sound that makes known its content on page 101. They're defined as audible sound making known its content through the power of symbols, such as, for example, the sound vase. The, uh, all words are symbols that make known uh, their content through sounds, through uh, symbols, sounds that are understood as symbols. Linguistic sound in terms of its essential nature is threefold nouns, predicated phrases, and letters. This is a very art, uh, archaic way of dividing the different types of words into these three categories. And then skipping to the next page. Skipping this whole section about nouns and proper nouns and so forth. Um, 
on the bottom of page 102, then there's an example of the second type of figurative name based on resemblance, uh, such as calling a man with large ears and a broad nose a lion. <laughs> uh, but more important is, let's see. On page 103, like the fourth or so paragraph, the fifth paragraph, one critical issue that is related to the discussion of sound is the statement found in Buddhist texts about the absence of type continuity in relation to sound. So type continuity is... Uh, type of continuity. There's different types of continuities. And there's a type of continuity. So uh, a continuity of the same type, obviously. In general, as, as shall be explained later, no beginning can be asserted for any condition thing with regard to its substantial continuum. That's an important point. No beginning can be asserted for any condition thing with regard to its substantial substantial continuum. So there's no beginning to matter. There's no beginning to, to consciousness. So just like any other material phenomena, even for sound, one must accept its substantial continuum. It has a substantial continuum without a beginning. <clears throat> Similarly, given that sound is a conditioned phenomena that possesses a string of moments as its components. It has to be something that possesses a continuum. For if sound does not possess a continuum, then since it would merely endure for the briefest moment such consequences as not being directly perceivable by ear consciousness and so on would ensue. If there was a sound that lasted less than a fraction of a second, we wouldn't hear it. It's only by virtue of there being an, an arrangement of sounds in a row that creates something that the ear can hear. So all that the ear hears is the continuum of sounds, of discrete, zillions of discrete sounds. Um, is it that we wouldn't hear it in the sense that the organ wouldn't pick it up, or is it the consciousness wouldn't bother with it? Mm, the organ wouldn't pick it up as a sound. For if sound does not possess a continuum, that since it would merely endure for the brief smoke, with such consequence not being directly perceivable, would ensue. Yet the fact that sound does not possess a type continuum is stated in many Buddhist texts. There's no such thing ultimately as a continuum. So in uh, this particular text, given that its continuum ceases, sound does not proceed from one place to another through the medium of the primary elements. As such, as such it exists in its own place and arises for an instant. So one of the conundrums about sound is uh, that it's only... Uh, perceivable by virtue of its continuity through time. And, and uh, anything that continues through time uh, is, things don't really continue through time. They arise and they disappear instantaneously. 
so uh, there really is no continuum of sound. There's only a perceived continuum of sound. So you have this conundrum where we can only perceive sound that appears to be a, a continuum, but actually, uh, because phenomena are not really continuums, we're perceiving a fallacy from a philosophical point of view. But it, that, why is that unique to sound? I mean, surely that you run into the same issue with any other perceived phenomenon. Such yeah, as phenomenon. Stop calling me Shirley, but yeah, I was wondering the same thing, that um, it, it actually is the case with any phenomena that when you see a color, you're seeing the, uh, the moments of a continuum of that color through time. So not quite sure why they focus on that quality with uh, sound. Uh, I think it's then, just that it's more obvious because it's... It's possibly that too. Yeah, it's possibly that. So in the middle of 104, now if one were to investigate the statement sound does not possess the type continuum appears to be a plausible explanation with respect to other material things is through the accumulation of similar type atoms that coarse level composite entities come into being. So finally, we're getting a little explanation of matter. One could posit a type continuum for these entities on the grounds that preceding moments transforming into subsequent moments occur because these physical phenomena emerge through the accumulation of subtle particles and increase in size as they develop into coarse phenomena. In contrast, even when there is an accumulation of similar type particles, sound does not increase in material size regardless of however loud or soft its volume may be, sound exists in dependence on the size of airwaves that constitute its supportive medium. Whoa, these guys knew about airwaves. Thus, although there's no basis for speaking about the size of the sound itself, still such questions require further examination. In any case, sound possesses the essential nature of a wave. For example, sound is indeed like ocean waves that appear to ordinary perception to move as a progression of earlier and later waves. This part is neat. You know, when you go to the beach, it looks like there's a wave of water and like each wave is discrete, like water that like moves, which is not the case. It appears that uh, the force of earlier waves duly generates later waves and that earlier waves themselves transform into later waves, but in reality, such waves never reach the shore, right? So the wave that you see out from the shore is the crest of water, and that water actually doesn't move to the shore, right? It pushes the water that's closer to the shore, and that water surges and pushes the other water, and that pushes the other water. But the water that started the wave out there doesn't come to shore. So too, if one takes a loud sound, such as the one produced from striking a gong, the force of the sound of the first moment determines how long the sound will endure. That the sound of the later moments arise from the force of the sound of earlier moments in the oscillation of air, its medium may be inferred from the shape. An example of the way, but this should be examined. Anyway, we're well uh, past our time, and... Uh, so we'll go through the remainder of this next week. We're falling a little bit behind here. So be it. Matter is a, is a matter of deep matter. So it needs
needs to be gone through thoroughly and slowly and carefully. Any comments? Final comments? <laughs> there we go. Skeletons everywhere. And by the way, from the collected topics, oops, shoot. Matter consists of particles, and there's uh, matter is classified as outer and inner. This is a simpler presentation by far. Uh, that which consists of outer particles is outer matter of outer objects and matter of inner objects consists of inner particles, for example, an eye sense faculty. Outer objects is classified as the form source, the sound source, smell source, and here they're talking datus, taste source, I believe, datus. Matter of outer objects and the first five of the six constituents that are observable objects are equivalent. Right? So matter of outer objects consists of the objects of the first five of the six constituents. The first five being the five sense organs. Right? Or the, or the sense objects. So those are equivalent. And the form source is apprehended by the eye consciousness, color white, color and shape. Classification of colors is primary and secondary. Four primary, eight secondary shapes, those different types of shapes. Form, form source, and form constituent are equivalent. We'll come back to that next week and these uh, bases for d debate. You know, try to look at these things and see if you can figure these things out in the interim. And then sound is audible to an ear consciousness. For example, the sound of a conch shell. <laughs> you know, how conch shells, you can blow them and they're like trumpets, right? And sounds arisen from elements conjoined with the actions of beings and sounds from elements not conjoined with the actions of beings. And the sound, sound source, and sound constituent are equivalent and some objects for debate. So we went through, through visual, Object form and sound form. Do, do, did you send that? We have, I have Deirdre table of contents, but I don't have that, do I? No, I'm not allowed to share That's the what I digital thought you said. version okay, you of the, that. Before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I'll show it during classes. No problem. In, in those pieces, but you can buy it. I, I believe I sent a link to Natarta Institute's yeah, website you if you can yeah. afford it. By that. Comments, suggestions, questions. Mary Beth. Is the the form skanda? It encompasses like the form and the smell and the sound and all of those things fall under it too, kind of? Yep. Yep. That's yeah, that's what we just saw. Is that the form, meaning the form aggregate and the the five objects of the five senses, that type of form, are equivalent. 
you know, it's um, I'm I'm sure we could find some like early scientific texts from the like the Western Hemisphere that would you know feel kind of as wonky as, as some of this stuff. Yeah, the Nature of Things by Erasmus or something might have. Some yeah, stuff. he talks about and, uh, and you know, part of, I I I'm left kind of wondering one like is this useful? <laughs> yeah. and, like, and two, I mean, can we um, related to that? Like, can, can we just like kind of like 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 paste in our modern scientific materialist understanding? I think so. I think I think we should. I think I think we should create an updated version of the whole thing. There was in in physics in the sixties and seventies. There were a lot of books written by physicists that incorporated Eastern views. But I'm I'm actually not interested in incorporating Eastern views. I'm I'm really just incorporating like whole cloth, like cutting this part of the book out and like putting in like an introductory like like science western science textbook into the book <laughs> yeah yeah and like, and, you know, there's the later stuff like can we can we like incorporate our like do we need to have all this stuff in order to have like a coherent buddhist worldview or can we have like a coherent world buddhist worldview with our modern scientific materialist understanding well yeah. what would be interesting would be the to, latter, to try to the do latter. it and then see what would be left out in terms of some of the weird, odd things that they, you know, made their system incorporate that Western science would not try to do. Try to do so it. It would be fun one. to try it and see what doesn't. Try to do it for one like small little slice of reality would be good exercise. And, I mean, uh, what West, what the Western leaves out that I think is valuable is the amount of energy that these guys are putting into what is a thought what is a vow like i think that's actually a really cool question and um science is just like oh it's just your brain firing electrons don't worry about it and it's like no no we do need to worry about it so it's like yeah how can you bring in the the western science but then create some kind of link into how do we deal with the murky stuff that actually has implications for our understanding of reality in our lives, where science just kind of says, don't worry about it too much. Um, I think that's where this material actually brings a lot to the table. And it's like what the Dalai Lama says in his, his introduction. He's sort of like, yeah, I know the world's not flat and like, that's fine. <laughs> I can still like interact with these other ancient Buddhist ideas and let go of anything that says the world is flat. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, putting those two together would be interesting. Um, uh, putting in like four visible objects. What is the Western scientific point of view or presentation on, uh, visible objects? And then what does that, uh, possibly not include? And, uh, you know, things like placebos, like how does that, factor into things stuff like that anyway um certainly not uh helpful to it's certainly not required to have a full view of buddhist world to uh understand the nuances of all these um what seem like somewhat silly categories 
but uh, th think about the um, yeah the way that they view them. I think is is the key point, as Emily was saying. What are they grappling with, and how are they how are they trying to solve those problems? And how and also in the con them? also in the context, as you're always saying, of what is the ultimate goal of all of this? Is not just to categorize the world, but to understand ultimately the nature of. Yeah, yeah. And, and so really, the key point in, in doing that is the way of breaking things down into all these different aspects. So we have this sense of a continuity of experience, which is a total um, illusion, and instead there's all these like tiny little fractions of things going on every second of like visual consciousness, associative, auditory consciousness, you know, we're engaging, we're not engaging, you know, our smell or our taste very much at the moment, but our visual and auditory are like happening like rapidly, like yeah, all the time. I, I think viewing it without self helps to see where they're coming from. Yeah, good. I'll try. And, and that ties into science because science is supposed to be without the self. <laughs> only, only what repeats you can prove, but you can't prove itself. <laughs> Who knows that it repeats? On that note, let us conclude with uh, dedicating the merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara, may it free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the rigdens wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Good night. Good to see you. Night, Eric. Thank you. Good to see the colors and the shapes that you mm. project and hear your the sound continuums. <laughs>